It's Friday, January 26, 2024, and welcome to How to Restart a Church, the weekly spinoff show where I, Pastor Trey Comstock, and my friend and colleague, Pastor Emily Larson, explore what it means to make church happen or make church happen again. Um, And as with our first show this week, so again with our second show this week, uh, we have a very special guest, and so I'm going to throw to Emily uh, to introduce her. Yes, we are super excited to have back on Dr. Ashley Bogan. Um, She is the General Secretary of General Commission on Archives and History uh, for the United Methodist Church. She is a self-proclaimed cradle Methodist, um, and we both had the privilege of hearing her last summer at the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. She gave an incredible call to all of us as clergy and lay people uh, to be like John Wesley, uh, to submit to be more vile. Um, And I have really enjoyed all of the things I have heard from her since in her podcast and the things that she puts out. Um, So welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you all for having me. Mm-hmm. So for those who are not United Methodists or who are, are United Methodists who are not familiar with the term uh, that John Wesley was talking about, submitting to be more vile, uh, will you give us just a brief history lesson on what does that mean? <laughs> I'll, I'll try to do the brief part, but I can definitely do the history part. <laughs> um, so John Wesley, this is about 1739. Um, so the, the three rises of Methodism that we learn about have already happened. Right. And he's he's trying to figure out how to do ministry differently. He doesn't feel called to the pulpit. He feels called somewhere else, but he doesn't know exactly where that is. He's already been to Georgia. So that's that wonderful um, chaotic moment in his life has already passed. And he's hanging around London as a member of the Fetter Lane Society. He's just had his heart strangely warmed about nine months prior. And he gets a call not a call. He gets a letter <laughs> um, from his, what I like to call frenemy, George Whitfield. Now, George Whitfield was one of the original holy clubbers at Oxford. So right, the two of them had worked previously, but disagreed a lot on doctrine. So George Whitfield sends him this letter and says, hey, John, I am down here in Bristol and I am preaching to huge crowds and I need some help. Will you come help me? And John's like, Okay, sure. You know, I know a little bit about Bristol. I know that it's, you know, surrounded by coal mines. It's it's part it's the heart of the industrial revolution. It's um, massively overcrowded and largely a very poor uh, urban area. So he goes down to Bristol and he arrives on March 31st of 1739 and he looks for Whitfield and he finds him preaching in the fields, which John is appalled by. Um, he writes in his journal, he's like, I, up until this moment, I had thought that the saving of souls a sin if it hadn't been done inside of a church. But Jeez. he sees, sees the effect on the crowd. Yeah. He sees that, that whatever George Whitfield was saying, and despite their theological differences, whatever George Whitfield was saying, people were being moved. And so two yeah. days later, he writes in his journal that he submitted to be more vile. 
and proclaimed <laughs> the good tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in a, in a, in a hill. And so in that submitting to be more vile, right, he's doing something that he never would have done before. He's doing yeah. ministry in a new way, in a way that kind of makes him sick to his stomach, right? That he finds vile, that he's been taught, you don't do ministry in that way. You do ministry only in these ways, right? We were talking about earlier in the, the way that we box ministries or we box love in. Right? He'd been taught, you do church in this way. And here he is being more vile by breaking open that box and saying, okay, I will take the love of God to wherever the people are, even if it's in the fields. I will be more vile because everyone needs to hear God's love in that message. I love it. I love it. And you do such a good job of explaining that. Um, so we are part of this denomination who is in a moment in history. Um, and so there are many churches, many congregations who are in this sort of um predicament of starting or restarting or revamping or trying to do things differently. Um, and so I love how you tie our history with our present moment and our future um, looking forward. And so uh, there's so many ties and crossovers there. I, I feel like many times on this show, Trey and I have talked about, you know, this has all happened before and this will probably yeah. all happen again. <laughs> We've been here before. <laughs> I, I always say, before. I think, I don't, this is not an original quote to me. I don't remember where I heard it or read it, but um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Yeah. And like right uh-huh. now, United yeah. Methodist, y'all, yeah. we are poets, like through and through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is a great way to put that. History does rhyme. Well, um, I, I, I think about. Like, there really is that, and we've talked about this before, but, like, there is that, like, push-pull of, like, calcification and revival. Calcification and revival. The, like, we get really into the, like, and, and we should, like, be serious in how we honor God, right? The, the nice pitch on cathedrals is that these are these giant monuments to the grandeur of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. Uh, God, super grand. But when we swing that way real hard, then what happens when you are not living so grand a life and thus you think that God has nothing to do with you because your soul, body, life, clothes do not look like this grand edifice? Um, and like I, you know, I see that I see that in Paul's ministry, you know. 1700 years before John Wesley and, you know, 2,100 years, you know, 2,000 years before us. Yeah. And there's, um, you know, in John Wesley's day, you know, the, the movement of the people called Methodist was always a renewal movement of mission and of outwardly love within the church of England. So, you know, on one hand, John Wesley didn't have to be concerned with building churches and property because, right. The Church of England already had all of that, but he did start preaching houses, right? And, And the beautiful thing about preaching houses is that they were so multifunctional. And I think that's one of the things that we've forgotten or lost how to do is, you know, you can have physical property. That's okay. No one's critiquing the fact that the church has physical property. It's how you use that space and how you set up that space. And so Wesley's preaching houses, they were a big old empty square. 
you would bring yeah. in pews or benches. Actually, you could, they weren't pews, they were benches. And you brought them in and you set them up each week so that you could take them out. And that space could be repurposed for a market, for a medical dispensary, for a library, for a place for people to have small group meetings to do that accountability that we talked about with the Jonah story. So that's one of those spaces where today we, you know, when you walk into a sanctuary today, usually those pews are like screwed into the floor. Yeah, or if and not, so, if not glued but, down. Right, with the yeah. name plaque on them about who put them there, so you can't move that ever, right. ever. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if you dare move the altar table an inch, left or right, someone's going to have something to say about it. Uh huh. And we've mm-hmm. just gotten so, um, I, I think focused on the way that the church looks at the altar and looks at the preacher and and the. Audi- like this demarcation of audience and and preacher that we were losing the communal aspect that Wesley wanted when he wanted when he heard or when he did preaching or heard preaching right it was a communal thing um, it's something that went back and forth it's something where people moved about um, had that emotional and experiential release so. and, and and was a a religious movement that fundamentally believed in like the holistic life of the community. I think a lot about when, so we, we have the three simple rules, right? Um, but if you actually read the like expanded document about do, the do good portion, right? You know, um, you know, do, do no harm, do good, attend to the ordinances of God. We, we summarize it in, in three pithy things. But if you read the do good portion, it is like, Buy from the people in your church so that you are feeding into their ability to put bread on the table. And it's not even just like go and like be charitable. It is like think about the like economic well-being of your folks so that you are not just like handing stuff out, which that is also good. And charity certainly handed out a lot of stuff too, but that like you are involved in create that the church, or he wouldn't have thought of the church, but like the movement of God exists to care for the totality of people. And part of what we are doing is to care for the totality of people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know if economic historians are a thing. They probably are. You can do a history of just about anything, but I would love an economic historian who, who might be Methodist to write an economic history of John Wesley's theology. Like to me, that would be so fascinating. I mean, you know, his dad was in and out of debtor's prison and that influences a lot of how he approached money, but it's, it's exactly what you're saying. I mean, it's, it's the idea of buy local. Right. That's essentially what he's saying. Right. The bi local movement is all the rage today. So why is are we as United Methodists not grounding that in Wesleyan theology? Because it is. Yeah, because it's right. Like it's right there and not (laughs) not even some obscure part. Right. Like I always think about. Like, you know, you can you can make anyone who said a lot of words say anything if you pull like four random pieces, you know, and then conspiracy theory brain them together. This one of like care for the economic health of your community, care about the sustaining of people's lives is right there in what we think of as like this like headline thing that organizes us that, you know, do no harm. OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. do good 
in all of these ways, not in this like squishy, like greeting card way, but in the like hard scrabble. I really hate greeting cards. Like this is, uh, <laughs> used to work for a guy who was a greeting card salesman. I don't think that helped. Um, anyways, but not in, but it's not that like that, that squishy greeting card. It's that like hard scrabble, like make people's lives better care about the physical condition of your folks and the people around you. Yes. And, and I think you're right about this, this communal aspect of, of church that we sometimes get away from, you know, a lot of churches are only open on Sundays now and they're not open the rest of the week. Right. But this is just a great big empty building that could be used for, you know, anything else to serve the community. And I know a lot of what people are doing Um, I live up in Amarillo, and so a lot of what people are doing in Northwest Texas Conference right now is they're begging us to do something different, right? Go somewhere different, be something different, uh, bring in a fresh expression of ministry to try something new, right? So that you can meet the needs of your community on more than just Sunday mornings. Um, I love seeing churches that have full parking lots on a random Thursday evening, or a random Friday morning, or a random Saturday afternoon, because that means that they are doing more than just one worship service on Sunday. Absolutely. And and do you know the only time of the week where Wesley's preaching houses were closed? Sundays. Sundays Because you're supposed to be in the Church of England. Yeah. You're supposed to be in the Church of England. There's a political move there, but like there's a lesson for us today, right? Like he... He, he did want you to go to the Church of England on Sunday morning. He was concerned about butts and pews, but he was more concerned about what are you doing Sunday afternoon to Saturday at midnight in order to spread the love of God. And that's why his preaching houses became that center of community that, that did these different, um, that, that cared for persons, souls, and bodies in a myriad number of ways. Absolutely. And so looking at churches that are trying to do things differently today, you know, we we talked about how the Methodist movement was so often ministry on the frontier, right? It was ministry at the forefront of either the new world or trying a new thing. Um, So, so many churches are in that space still or are considering delving into that space today. Um, What advice would you give to those churches that are trying to do something different, that are trying to um, be ministry on the frontier, to, to reach That are trying to be vile. Today. How do we that be more vile? Be, how can we be more vile? <laughs> I mean, you know, I think the advice I could give is, is going to go back to kind of how Wesley's being more vile was received, right? And it's, it's finding um, that it's, it's okay to be criticized, um, it's okay yeah. to potentially fail. Um, it's kind of like that. I always hate the expression. Uh, there's no such thing as bad press, you know, cause anybody talking about you, like, but, but, um, you know, after Wesley submits to be more vile, like immediately after he gets a letter from the Bishop of, of that diocese and the Bishop says in that letter, why are you here? I did not permit you to be here. And why are you preaching in fields with Whitfield? Like you need to go home. And it's in his response to that bishop where we get the oft-quoted, sir, I see the world as my parish. Yeah. Right? And, and he's, he's calling out that, like, you cannot confine me to a certain diocese or a certain way of doing ministry. The world is my parish. 
And so today, you know, how do we think about expanding our United Methodist Parish? And I don't mean planning satellite churches. I mean, like, using the technology that we have, right? Wesley is all about using the latest technology. So using the technology that we have, how do we reach people in new spaces and places? You know, I hear, um, I think it's in North Carolina, where there's a gaming ministry, that yes. Where yeah. 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 So, yeah. Uh, checkpoint. Check. Checkpoint Church. Yes. Um, yes right. They're great. That's amazing. And, yeah. and so many people yeah. are like, "How can you do church while gaming?" And it's like, log on and find out. Like, I'm, they, yeah. they're doing it, and it's having effect, and yeah. it is taking the message of God to where people are. And if that is on a gaming console, do it. Right. And so, like, you could do this with with a whole bunch of different types of technology that we have today. Um, you know, I, I often see when I go to conferences or, or big uh, denominational meetings, they play, it's usually the same script. I forget which company it's by, but it talks about virtual reality church. When it shows like a, a minister wearing a VR headset <laughs> doing communion. <laughs> yeah. it's like, I'm, I'm sure we will get there at some point, but that's not the only, you know, new horizon way to do church. Right? Yeah. Uh, you know, doing church in, in new physical places, coffee shops, yeah. um, you know, bars for heaven's sakes, yeah. you know, places like yeah. that. It, if it's bringing yeah. people to the love of God in a sincere and consensual way, do it. Yeah. One of the we, most successful, we've talked about, Emily and I have talked about this before, but uh, one of the most successful things we did at a previous church was we launched Theology on Tap at the local pub. Um, and it, some of it was, it created a venue for people who might have been, it did not do what we wanted to do. It was just like, oh, community members just going to be piling in here. But what it actually turned into is people who were on the periphery of church, the periphery of our church, who didn't really see a way to connect, but like felt drawn to church, all of a sudden became regular small group attenders telling like deep stories out of their soul um we ended up being like a a a, a, this became like a a a weird spot for like people with military experience or people with correctional officer facility like um you know a lot of us a little bit of a strain of ptsd found like a real home like but it it was a lot of people who if i if we had held that in the church they wouldn't have come, even though they were associated with their church already. It was not the environment where they could find that, where they could find peace and fellowship and, and relax. It was not an environment that felt at home to them. Whereas sitting at the fire pit at the pub and drinking a couple of beers, that actually led to this, like, it's, st- it's still going. It's just Emily and I don't work there anymore. Um, but it, this amazing, you know, long-lasting small group with some real deep, authentic sharing of faith life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I mean, that's exactly the, the people that Wesley was trying to reach, um, not only in Bristol, but kind of throughout his entire lifetime, were those people who were on the margins of society and on the margins yeah. of church. And it's the persons who, you know, didn't have the luxury to take Sunday morning off to go to the yeah. Anglican sanctuary. It's the people who didn't mm-hmm. have the right dress or maybe they'd been to church once and somebody said, you're too dirty to be in my sanctuary. You need to leave. 
right? It's, it's those people where he was like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to reach those people who don't feel comfortable setting foot inside a church. And that's exactly right. I mean, if you create spaces that people can be vulnerable and open to God, they'll probably want to be open to God. Yeah. I've, I've I've met very, very few people in my life who do not want to be open to, open to God in some way, shape, or form. It's all about the space that you create in order to allow that to be comfortable, a comfortable conversation. One of the one of the really nerdy things that we do often on this show is we look at statistics of like what is Pew Pew as a whole Pew Research is this whole segment that just does religious data, um, and I am more than mildly obsessed with it. But they so Pew has been doing this really remarkable job of like, okay, how do we tease out spirituality versus religion, right? And so what they've found is we talk about like religious decline. And the only thing that's actually declining is a certain type of organized religion. Disorganized religion is, is as healthy as it's ever been because that's the longing of the human soul after the divine. And so it turns out that the longing for the human soul after the divine, which we as Wesleyans would call God's provenient grace, alive and well. What we're doing with that provenient grace remains the open question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that's one of the, the points that I try to get at when talking about the church today is the message that you constantly hear from, whether it is from the news channel or radio or your preacher in the pulpit or your bishop in the annual conference office, is that the church is in decline. Uh-huh, yeah. And, it's like, well, if you're only looking at finances and maybe membership st- statistics, okay. But when we let numbers, when we obsess on these numbers, drive how we're presenting ourselves in the world, that's the problem. And we have to yeah. let, we have to almost look past data. And I know it's really hard to look past finances, especially when you're the person who's in charge of finances. Uh huh. Yeah. No. I all of my gray all of my gray hairs are named after church budgets. I yes. Rapidly aging thirty seven year old men. Yeah, it's so hard to do. But in order to to almost to to make church grow, you have to be willing to take those big risks and to not you know be driven by your budgets and your finances and and do ministry in new and kooky ways because y'all the love of God compels us to be weird and experiment yeah. <laughs> and get out there and it it begs for us to to get people talking about how we're doing ministry differently and that's the conversation we need to have and not how is the church declining this week yes Very i i true. think a the this we should, we really Emily we really just need to just bite the bullet and do uh i react podcast to rise and fall of mars hill because yeah, I, probably. you know now, two years later, I still can't get it out of my head. Um, right. But one of the like thesis statements that show comes around to is the problem of bigness. That part mm-hmm. of what happened, not just at Mars Hill, but that Mars Hill becomes this interesting emblem of, is the problem of bigness. That the value is in the bigness. Um, the guy I took uh, Methodist history from, um, uh, Dr. Bill Daniels, better known at Candler School of Theology as Wild Bill Daniels, um, self-styled Wild Bill Daniels. Um, I, the way he taught Methodist history was uh, the real problem was when we put steeples on churches. 
Um, that was the like that was the the marker, and this is like mid eighteen hundreds, and we're not even at our peak numerically yet. But where uh, he also had a thing in for handbells that I shared. Um, but uh, where Wild Bill Daniels would would mark the the like the real shift was we put steeples on churches, we founded universities, which that part I'm not have a problem with, and we bought handbells. Um, and, I, you know, I, I happen to agree with two or three of those things. Um, I also don't like handbells. But it, it, it gets at the, like, we became, we became big through this amazing, you know, 100-year-long missionary effort, essentially, uh, of people going all kinds of crazy places, people being incredibly vile, some real, beautifully vile people. Um, vile people crossing oceans, vile people crossing oceans of prairie, right? Like all over the place. And so for a hundred years, from we're going to do rough, rough dates from the mid 1700s, to the mid 1800s, we're incredibly vile. Then from the mid 1800s on, we put steeples on churches, bought handbells and became big. And when bigness became the story, that becomes really hard to then go back to being vile. I always, um, I, I teach it in a very similar way. I might have to start calling myself Wild Ashley and re- and that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it really is, once the Methodist Episcopal Church forms in 1784, they try to keep the vile thing going, right? They're critiquing yeah. slavery. They are, like, and, and critiquing slavery while writing letters to President Washington. And, like, all of this stuff, right? They, they are yeah. doing, pushing society. And they start getting criticized, like, crazy for it. And that's where I think the two happen in tandem. You, you do have those, those vile circuit writers going out and doing ministry in new ways and taking the word of God out to where people are. But institutionally, you start yeah. seeing the institution lose that vile spirit. I mean, by 1808, when the constitution of the Methodist Episcopal Church is written, we've essentially gotten rid of the line that says, do no harm, and that labeled owning slaves as a, as a way to do no harm. <laughs> we were like, well, you know, um, well, uh, no, maybe it depends uh, upon like how your annual conference, wherever your annual conference is, if, oh. if that state will let you manumit your slaves, then, then do no harm by not having slaves. Right. And so we mm-hmm. start to lose that vile spirit as we become an institution. And as the institution grows over the course of the 19th century, the vile spirit lessens because when you contrast being the institution versus what Wesley was doing, Wesley was a movement inside an institution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And once you become the institution, you have to make the rules and you have to pay the bills and you have to pay the preachers and like ensure growth and power and voice and influence and all of these things. And then it's really hard to break the rules as an institution. Yeah. And so right now the United Methodist church is a big institution with a lot of voice, a lot of influence, a lot of money, but we are an institution in need of movement. Yes. We, we have to remember that, that what we were known for was pushing the boundaries and that the name Methodist, where we got yeah. that name, it was originally an insult. Yeah, it's it, a was a way of, it was a way of making yeah. fun of us. And, and John Wesley yeah. was like, I see your insult and I raise you a label. Like, I'm going to own this. Uh-huh. And so how do, <laughs> we, that, like, how do we reclaim this idea that Methodist is something that, you know, 
is so well known for its radical love of neighbor and people on the outskirts that that you kind of want to poke fun at it. Like that's the kind of movement that we need is that um, stirring up of of our willingness to to carry that I guess insult. <laughs> it's not really an yeah. insult, but you okay. know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, too, but to be so singularly devoted to what we think really matters in the world that people are going to make fun of our earnestness. Because really, that's what that's what's happening to John and the early Methodists is, you know, the the you know, the their friend, their frenemies at Oxford are going, well, you guys are like, you have a method for salvation. And they're like, you know what, we take this so seriously. Fine. Go for it. Calls that. Whatever. I don't care. I'm going to be in a prison, like, visiting somebody. I'm going to be, like, discussing the Holy Fathers with my friends in their late 20s, a thing that perfectly normal people in their late 20s do. Like, yeah, that some, I mean, some of it is the, like, we need to find that passion, right? that we have all the theological tools available to us. We've never changed our fundamental beliefs about God's grace, about faith in action, about, you know, whatever. We just found, we often have found clever ways to pay other people to do it, but we still believe all those things. But we need the, like, you know, we talk about what is faith. Um, this ends up being this strain in my preaching I never thought I'd stumble on. But like the nature of faith is it's something that motivates you, right? That it motivates your actions and choices, right? And that's part of what the early, you know, my read on early Methodism is they had that passion that like they believed this thing so much it motivated their way of life and led them to deliberately choose to be more vile, right? To go that they fundamentally believed that people needed to be reached or connect and whatever so much that they would go places that, you know, certainly in John's case, he never thought he'd go. Absolutely. Well, I am so excited that we got to have you on the show today. And I know you have so many really good resources out there. I really love your podcast. Um, so I want to make sure that we tell people where to find you there at Untied Methodism. Um, but what other amazing resources do you have for folks that they want to follow along and see what you're doing? So uh, the Journal Commission on Archives and History, we do have online courses. A lot of them are history-based. Well, not a lot of them. All of them are history-based because that's our job. <laughs> <laughs> um, some mm-hmm. of them are free. Some of them are, have a small fee associated with them. But one of the ones that we're putting out right now that I'm really excited about is called Radical Methodism. And it's radical spelled R-A-D-I-C-L-E. Like the number of emails I've gotten where it's like, um, there's a typo. And I'm like, it's not a typo. Watch the intro video. It's a thing. I didn't know it was a thing. You didn't. I, I, I pulled that on, on my pastor friend here at Ma- the UMC in Madison. I was like, did you know that that was a typo? And he's like, you didn't listen to the sermon, did you? I was like, I, I did. It's like how to show you didn't how to show you didn't listen to the first thing. Anyway, um it's it's essentially a Methodist history 101. Right? It takes us back to our roots. It's four modules. Um two of them are out. They're not complete, but they are out as kind of teasers. And all four modules will be out hopefully within the next week, but we guarantee by January 31st. It'll have a leader guide, a participant guide. And, you know, we're encouraging it to be used by Sunday schools, by small groups, 
by adult confirmation classes, new member classes. I mean, basically anywhere where people are saying, huh, I wonder what does it really mean to be a Methodist? Yeah. If you have that question, this course will help you dive in to what it means to be Methodist and how that word and the identity has shifted from the day of Wesley to where we are today as United Methodists. And that's, sorry, that's um, on umhistoryhub.teachable.com. Yeah, and we'll link that in the show notes as well. I actually have it up um, in this other monitor right now. It is um, awesome. And it is uh, really encouraging to have like really modern digital curriculum available from the United Methodist Church. I cannot tell you how thankful Thanks. I am for that. Um, <laughs> and it's free. You know, and it's free. Yeah. Um, Amazing. You know, eventually the the claymation circuit rider video, which anyone who grew up Methodist knows what this this eventually that leaked its way out on the internet, and I've used that a lot. But this stuff looks way better than that. I mean, I have a special place in my heart for that claymation video. Yeah, same. The um, last summer at Youth Twenty Twenty Three, I rewrote the words to Beyonce's "All the Single Ladies" to be "All the Circuit Riders," oh, no. and there was nice. talk, there was talk of of recording my version of her song over the claymation as like a, a yes. way to revive the claymation. So I don't know if that's oh. actually going to happen, but we could probably make it happen. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, you know, I have mild in the world. <laughs> I have too much video editing software sitting right here in front of me. This is something that could happen. I have a production studio paid for by the United Methodist Church, no less. Um, thank you so much um, for joining us. Um, this, you know, your, your wisdom and your perspective on Methodist history and how we can not just rhyme in the bad ways, but rhyme in the good ways um, is, uh, is really powerful. And so thank you uh, very much. Um, to you at home, um, if you have feedback or would like your thoughts shared on the show, email us, thegoodnessofgodpod at gmail.com, thegoodnessofgodpod at gmail.com. If you want more of what we do, there's a lot of digital things that happen. Um, there will be even more starting soon. Um, you can follow us at, at Servants Now on all of the things, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, the internet at servantsnow.org, YouTube, which is where... Everything we do ends up youtube.com slash servants. Now this show is made possible because we got a generous grant. Um, what's called an innovators grant by the Texas annual conference, of the United Methodist church. And for which without that grant, we would not have this beautiful studio and, and the, the vaguely the time to do this. Um, and so we're very thankful with that. We could use your help at home. Um, let other people know about what we are doing. Um, like, comment, subscribe, leave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. I think I said iTunes last show. <laughs> that is because I have been in the podcast game since the dark days of iTunes. It is now Apple Podcasts and has been for like a decade. Um, anyways, <laughs> I promise I'm like a techno technologically forward person. Uh, go in peace to love and serve the Lord, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>